I'm uh, Dave Mitchell, and uh, I still am here. Thank you. Um, you're very, very gracious. Grace is giving someone something they don't deserve, so that's what you are. We have an outline that's available for you. Follow along if you would, please. I think you'll find it of some benefit as we continue in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 15 is where we will find ourselves. And this morning, the topic is all about accepting others. I'm going to read the text. I invite you to, as I read through the text, see the theme of acceptance as it is flowing through this particular passage. We're in a series called Living Free. We've been set free, Romans 1 through 11. And now we're living free, Romans chapter 12 through 16. In our particular church, one of the things we love to do is to take a book of the Bible and go through it. Sometimes churches are known for their topics. Other times they're known for their Bible studies. We believe that going through the book of Romans also drives topics that are relevant, but you can see how they come and are derived from the text. The topic this morning being acceptance. The text being Romans 15. Let me read Romans chapter 15, starting with verse 4 actually. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Notice those two words, perseverance and encouragement, as we go to verse 5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. Where do they come from? They come from verse 4, where the text of the Old Testament that we can read from. Now the same God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that, here's the result, with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's this powerful, important word, therefore. As a result of what has just been said in verses 4 through 5, therefore, this is the conclusion, accept one another, just as Christ has also accepted us to the glory of God. And then he goes on to explain that. What does that look like? Verse 8, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that is, the Jewish people, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And for the Gentiles, now he's going from the Jews to the Gentiles. Jews did not always accept Gentiles, but notice how he now builds the case. For the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy as it is written. The Gentiles glorifying God The Gentiles are an important part of God's history. And then he quotes from David, Moses, and Isaiah. And these quotes won't make sense until I get to them a little bit later in the message. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy as it is written, therefore I will give you praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. Again, quoting from the Old Testament, from Moses, from Isaiah. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise Him. And again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we find this section all about accepting one another as Christ has accepted us, and then he builds the case. That's what we want to talk about. So a huge topic of today. I just pulled some headlines off the uh, Internet. These are some of the topics that are being bantered around, and there are various points of view on all of them. As our president has now put into law uh, by his pen and his phone somehow, 
this acceptance of this group of people who have particular sexual orientations and inclinations as well. They want to be equally accepted as everyone else, and so he has determined that that would be the case in areas that it could include even religious organizations. Rick Warren found himself in the middle of a little bit of controversy when he was trying to be accepting of the Muslims. And there were a lot of people that reacted about that. But the desire is an outreach to the Muslim population. They need Jesus too. And so he was trying to be accepting of them. Then we find this that was taking place, has been taking place. If you're any... Uh, aware of the news of the immigration, illegal immigration, the border, the humanitarian crisis, whatever the nomenclature of the day is to somehow poise this in a particular point of view. Uh, but there is a desire for a lot of these uh, children that are coming up from Central America. Uh, they want to be accepted here in the United States of America. They see something that is good here for them. Then we find that there is a battle raging in Gaza between the Jews and those who are living in Gaza. And uh, there is a desire for acceptance. The Jews just want to be accepted as a state. Accept us as the Israeli state. And there are the enemy that are living in Gaza. And they refuse to accept that there would be a Jewish state named Israel, even though there has never been anything but a Jewish state since the beginning of time in that particular location. But there is this back and forth between Gaza and the Jews. And so there are innocent people being slaughtered on both sides. And it's a tragedy. And then we find that there is a tragedy right here in Chicago. One of the most war-torn areas of the world is Chicago. I don't know if you read the paper, but here is the, this, just this last week. 22 shot, 2 dead, and they coined that as being unacceptable. <laughs> unacceptable. Uh, it's a tragedy. That's a humanitarian crisis. And the irony is this, and it's just a little bit of a, I just throw this in. This is sort of Dave. This isn't God. Uh, so you don't need to listen if you don't want to. But uh, the irony is this. Just yesterday, the mayor of Chicago said, we're going to receive 1,000 of these illegal immigrant children into Chicago. If there's any way to keep them in Central America, it's to send them to Chicago, where they're more likely to get shot in Chicago than they are in Central America, perhaps. Or perhaps we'll be actually having kids in Chicago try to get down in Central America. I don't know. But it's just the craziness of the world in which we live. But there is this desire to be accepted in these children that are growing up in fatherless homes and dysfunctional families and the cruelty that goes on in society and the gangs uh, that are infesting these pockets of the world. And gangs are simply kids that have no acceptance but in the gangs. And so there are people looking for acceptance all around. This morning we want to examine this from a biblical perspective, putting aside any kind of the politics that maybe I touched on here for just a moment and maybe turned off some people. But here's the first thing that I noticed that comes out of this text. A long sentence that doesn't easily stick in your brain, but I'll break it down. I believe that verses 4 through 6 of chapter 15 teach us this. We need to be more accepting of all people. And how do you become more accepting of all people? What Paul is talking about here is a mind that is, has a biblical perspective that I figured out what God wants me to know. I understand God, I understand His Word, and I'm driven by what Scripture teaches me. That's my foundation. That's my biblical approach. I'm not going to get lost. We talked about the last two Sundays of the incidentals, sort of the supplemental, sort of the opinions. Paul says in Romans uh, 14.1, the opinions. I'm not going to get caught up in the opinions. I want to know what God says 
I'm going to be driven by that. I'm also going to be driven not by a biblical perspective alone, but a selfless motive where it's not for my glory, but it's for God's glory. Now, let me just break this down. Here's the way I see it. God has given to us an ability to accept others that we may disagree with, to accept others whose behavior may be biblically incorrect or wrong or sinful. God has given us capacity to do that. When? I focus my mind on His Word and on Himself because He will encourage me and He will help me persevere. That's what He's believe He's talking about in verses 4 and 5. Again, in verse 4, part of verse 4, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, and that is that we might have perseverance and encouragement so that we might press on to the things God's called us to do. And then in verse 5, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement that comes from the Word of God, from the Old Testament, grant you to be the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. I want you to have the same mind. I want you to be united together. And when we're united around God's Word, God's Word drives me. He gives me encouragement and perseverance. Now here's some of the challenges. You saw this last week, about a week ago on Friday. Uh, our current uh, newspaper, because uh, only a few of us here actually get and read the newspaper, I'll give you the headlines. I spent my own money on this newspaper so that you could have it free of charge. Thank you very much. But here is what it said a week ago on a couple of days. Some evangelical Christians are rethinking the Bible. Jim Hinch wrote this, and I've talked to Jim Hinch a couple of times. He's interviewed me a few times on past religious type articles. And what he goes on to describe is how many in the evangelical community, that's us, are finding our way that, uh, you know, we shouldn't take the Bible so literally. We should have more freedom in how we interpret it and how we apply it because times, they are changing. And so we need to keep up with the times. And we need to read Scripture in, through the lens of culture. We don't, read, we don't read culture through the lens of Scripture. And so he interviews some people that are in the article. I'm not going to get lost on it. One of the people you see on the screen here with the surfboard is Rob Bell. He was not interviewed, although he did quote from him from previous passages, uh, passages from previous articles. When you're a preacher, every word is like a churchy word. From previous uh, uh, newspaper uh, interviews. And uh, he also got a quote from Rob Bell's wife who referred to people like, not me by name, but people who do what I do and people who believe what I believe, that I believe the Bible is literal, biblical truth, and it is to stand the test of time. And as she called people who do that, we tend to be uh, having the problem of bibliolatry, bibliolatry, that we are worshiping the Bible but not the God of the Bible. That's not a new word. One of the beautiful things about being as old as I am is that you begin to hear the same jokes the second or third generation around. Way back in 1977 when I graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary, I heard the term bibliolatry being bantered around as that's the problem with Dallas grads. They have bibliolatry because they worship the Bible but not the guide of the Bible. So nothing new under the sun as Solomon has said. But the problem is that there is this thinking that we want to diminish the power of the Word. Now, why am I driving that drumbeat so much? Because in verse 4, it says, For whatever was written in our earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. You can't have hope if you don't believe in the Scriptures that were written for our instruction, that are biblically true and relevant for our times. In fact, the thinking of this article and those who support the downplay of biblical truth 
is that it is nothing new either under the sun. The very first words that Satan ever said on earth, the very first words that Satan ever said on earth are in the blue. Now the serpent was more crafty than the beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Indeed has God said. The very first thing Satan ever said is to cause me to doubt the literal biblical truthfulness of God. It's still happening today. So I love, I go back to the Old Testament. What happens when you go back to the Old Testament? You begin to learn how God works. One of the great stories that comes out of the Old Testament that may or may not be on your mind, but it was on mine as I've been reading through 1 Kings. In 1 Kings chapter 22, King Ahab wants to go to war. He wants to solicit the king of Judah, the two southern tribes, King Jehoshaphat. And what does King Ahab do when he gathers together? He gathers together 400 or so prophets. King Ahab goes to his prophets and says, Prophets, should I go to war? Should I not go to war? And all 400 of those prophets says, King Ahab, you're the man. You're the man. They all high-fived each other and says, Go out there and do battle because we believe in you, King Ahab. So whatever you want, you go do it. So all 400 prophets They said, King Ahab, we love you. We want you to succeed. And so we're not going to say anything that we know would be contrary to what your opinion is. So the King Ahab's 400 prophets said, we'll say what you want us to say. And they said, yes, go to battle. So the text says this. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire the Lord, but I hate him. Why does he hate this one prophet? Because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micah, son of Imlah. But Jehovah sat, said, let not the king say so. He says, I got 400 prophets that say, yes, go to battle. But Micah, he so irritates me because he doesn't tell me what I want to hear. And so we go to the next passage. And all the prophets were prophesying thus saying, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Yes, we believe in you. We just want to say whatever you want us to say. We'll say whatever you want to say. Then the messenger who went up to summon Micah spoke to him, saying, and this is what that article that I just showed you, evangelicals are downplaying biblical truth. This is the same thing that happened, and this is like around 800, 900 B.C. So nothing new under the sun. Then the messenger who went to summon Micah said to him, Behold, now, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. There's all kinds of pressure for that same mindset today. Don't say what culture says is good and favorable. Uh, I mean, don't say what the Bible says about what culture should be doing. Say what the culture says should be said. There's all kinds of pressure on people like ourselves who believe in the fullness of the literal truth of God's Word. Just turn it down. Water it down. Get with it. We live in new times. So let your word be like the word of them. And Micah says this, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I shall speak. Now that's the danger we live in. That we have only a very few Micahs. 400 prophets against one, that's kind of the way it's going these days. As churches and pastors and seminaries are going the way of the 400 prophets. And very few are standing firm with Micah. Now, why does God quote 
in verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times is written for our instruction. So we can go back in the Old Testament and say, Ah, now I understand how God wants us to work because I know that there's going to be a tendency for every generation that comes up is going to want to do what King Ahab and his 400 prophets wanted to do. And there will be very few Micahs, but we pray that there will always be some Micahs who will stand there firm and, and solid on biblical truth. Now, another good illustration from the Old Testament, and I'm not going to have time to go into it, but is Elijah. Why does Paul say, go back into the Old Testament and read there for your perseverance and your encouragement? Go read, for example, Elijah. King Ahab again. King Ahab and Elijah, they didn't get along very well because Elijah killed 450 Baal worshipers. Remember the fire came down and consumed the altar? And Elijah, the next chapter in 1 Kings 19 began to run from Jezebel, King Ahab's wife, and he ran. And here's how God brings us to the Old Testament and why it's so important for us today. Because when King Ahab's wife Jezebel began to chase after Elijah, he ran like crazy to get away from her. He was so fearful. Elijah had a problem. His problem was fear. Anybody ever have fear? His problem was discouragement, depression, He's suicidal. Ever been depressed, discouraged, or suicidal, or fearful? Ever been in a place where you say, God, just take my life because life isn't worth living? Well, then I go back to a passage like this because God says the Old Testament was written for my instruction so that I, with perseverance and encouragement the Scriptures might give me hope. So when I go to read 1 Kings 19, the Scriptures begin to give me hope. Because I read about Elijah, this great, great prophet. This is one of the greatest prophets that has ever lived in the history of mankind. Done one of the greatest miracles that man has ever seen in raising a child from the dead. This is Elijah. And Elijah is now depressed and discouraged and despondent. And he doesn't want to live. And when you read 1 Kings 19, you say, Well, God knows about my problems. God comes alongside Elijah and says, Elijah, where are you? I want to interact with you. I want to draw you into my presence. And so he does some miracles around Elijah. The ravens bring Elijah food. It doesn't mean when you're discouraged, ravens are going to bring you food. But there's a principle. It means that when I'm discouraged and despondent and it seems like every good thing I do doesn't matter, I read Old Testament passages like 1 Kings 19 and I begin to understand that, God, you know my needs. God, you will provide for my needs. And God, when necessary, you'll even do miracles for my needs. And all you do is invite me into your world. And that when I'm discouraged and despondent, I can begin to feel the presence and the power of God in ways that I would not have otherwise. And then that God then recommissioned Elijah. And he found Elisha. And Elisha came along and became his servant. And Elisha became his companion, his supporter, his encourager. So that Elijah now has encouragement and perseverance. And Elijah now is living, breathing in 1 Kings 19 so that you and I can have hope. That's why I say, be a student of the Old Testament. Read the stories of how God worked. Learn the ways that God continues to work today based upon the principles of his work then. And that's why the Apostle Paul says to us, for whatever was written in earlier times is written for our instruction so that perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. God wants people like Elijah to still have hope. That's the Word of God. 
That's why we emphasize. I can accept other people when I know that I'm accepted by God and that God truly wants to work through me. Because if I don't feel accepted, I don't feel worthy, and I don't do anything to reach out to anybody else because my world is all around me. And then the motivation, it's all around the glory of God so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, give us perseverance and encouragement. I'd like to bring a number of stories this morning to help illustrate what I'm talking about. Here's the first. I was reading this last week about a church, and there's a couple in that church whose names are John and Denise Knight. John and Denise Knight were very faithful members of that church. And then they had a little baby boy. That little baby boy was born and he had no eyes. And along with no eyes, they discovered that he was autistic and he other physical ailments that required tubes and hoses and all kinds of medical treatment. John Knight looked at his little boy there and all the deformity of that little child. And he looked at God and says, God, I hate you. I reject you. Why didn't you do this to me? Why did you do it to my child? And John Knight turned his back on God. He just quit on God. If this is what you would do to a little innocent baby, then I want nothing to do with you. And here's where acceptance comes in. In that same church is another couple. Their names are Carl and Geraldine. Carl and Geraldine knew about uh, the Knights and their problems and that they are no longer attending church. They've given up on God. They've given up on church. And so what Carl and Geraldine began to do is to just to stop by and just want to let you know we're praying for you. Another time, Carl and Geraldine would stop by and they brought a, uh, a loaf of fresh-made bread and just left it at the doorstep to let them know that we care about you. And Carl and Geraldine just did not give up on John and his wife Denise. Did not give up on them. And continued to stay in touch. And finally, John and uh, Denise were willing to come to dinner to their house. And so uh, uh, the um, Carl and Geraldine invited them over and here's what happened that night. This is according to John Knight, the dad who gave up on God. They'd throw my son up in the air. They made him laugh. They'd do funny bird sounds, the children of John, of uh, Geraldine and Carl. And that was confounding because most people, most adults couldn't do that. And so I would have this extraordinary expression of love and affection at the dinner table here and I would turn to my left and there would be at least one of their three children playing with my boy like he was a real boy. I wasn't even sure he was a real boy at times. As those children began to accept my son in ways that even I couldn't accept it, John would say. As a result of Carl and Geraldine's continued acceptance of John and Denise and not giving up on them for a minute... As a result of that, John and Denise came back to the Lord, came back to church. And here's what he said. John said, they persisted. That was a big deal, that they persisted with us. If there's someone in your sphere of relationships that is turning their back on God, has lost hope, like Elijah, lost hope, and they need perseverance and encouragement, don't give up on accepting them and finding those little 
tiny ways like a loaf of bread. And they brought over a basket of soap and shampoo for Denise. Those little steps that are loving and gracious that begin to soften the heart of the hardened heart that's turned its back on God. That's why God says, I want to give you perseverance and encouragement and hope from the Word of God. As you settle on that truth, you will live it out. And we need to learn from Jesus and how He accepted people. Notice in verse 7, Therefore accept one another just as Christ has also accepted us to the glory of God. Here are some of the passages that show how God accepted people through Jesus Christ. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble on heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I should have put in the blue, Come to me, the word all. All. It doesn't mean you have to have it all together. If you read my email this last week, you would know that every time I drive over to the parking lot over here at Gold's Gym, and I see all these really fit people wearing this really skin-tight clothing going into Gold Gym. I look at those people walking into Gold Gym, and I said, if I look like that, I'd go to Gold Gym. But I look like I look. I don't fit in. I just don't fit. I'm not fit, and I don't fit. And that's the problem. That's the problem. But Jesus says, I want to take all like Dave, all like us, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I want to give you rest. They also read in Ephesians 4, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God also in Christ has forgiven you. Acceptance is being tender-hearted, forgiving. As God forgave me, I forgive others. That's acceptance. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us as an offering, a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma. And then also in Luke 5, here's how Jesus accepted people. The Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at His disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Can you imagine Jesus going to sinners? That's just awful. We don't allow sinners in this room. We, all, we, we want no sinners at Calvary Church, right? Hear the sarcasm, please. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus says, I love to hang out with sinners because sinners need saviors. Those who are righteous, they don't need me. Self-righteous, that is, the Pharisees. Story number two. This is a story that you've heard before, but I'm going to remind you of it because I am so amazed by this story. The story of a woman by the name of Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Rosaria Champagne Butterfield was a professor in women's studies at Syracuse University. That's probably as about as liberal as you're going to get. She's a lesbian. She had a lesbian partner. And uh, she thought all people like you and me who are believers in what I've just been talking about are intellectually impaired people. That we don't have the intellectual capacity to understand how wrong we are and how right she is. Until she came across a pastor and his wife, Ken and Floyd. And Ken and Floyd struck a relationship with Rosaria. And Ken and Floyd began to have a friendship with Rosaria. A friendship that spanned at least two years 
as they invited Rosaria into their home, not for a Bible study, but for dinner. And they just got acquainted. Here's one way that Rosaria wrote about her situation. I believed at this time that God was dead and that if He ever was alive, the fact of poverty, violence, racism, sexism, homophobia, and war was proof that He didn't care about His creation. Now, I don't think you get much more liberal than that. That's where she's coming from. Ken and Floyd did something at that meal that has a long Christian history, she writes. They invited a stranger in, not to scapegoat me, but to listen, to learn, to dialogue. And to debate world, not to debate worldview. They were willing to walk the long journey to me in Christian compassion. During our meal, they did not share the gospel with me. After our meal, they did not invite me to church. Because of these glaring omissions to the Christian script as I had come to know it, when the evening ended and Pastor Ken said he wanted to stay in touch, I knew that it was truly safe to accept his open hand. Since this beginning of the journey on which the Lord has taken me has been a great adventure and this simple meal in a pastor's home was the first leg of this journey, before I ever stepped foot in church, I spent two years meeting with Ken and Floyd on and off, studying the Scripture in my heart. Ken knew at the time that I couldn't come to church. It would have been too threatening, too weird, too much. So Ken was willing to bring the church to me. I'm inviting us to accept people like Rosaria, that no matter how long it takes, no matter how much love I have to expend, no matter how much encouragement and perseverance it requires of me, that we be people like Jesus, hanging out with sinners because sinners need Jesus. Why hang out with saints? Saints are already going to heaven. Yeah, we want to encourage and disciple each other. I get that. But the sinners, their destiny is hell. And so we need to go to the rosarias of this world that look hopeless, that look like they would never come to Christ, and we love on them. And we bring the church to them. And then I need to remember the three reasons why we must accept difficult people. Here's what becomes an interesting portion of God's Word that requires a little extra digging around to kind of understand it, if you will. Just cursory reading that doesn't really make a lot of sense. But we need to remember there are three reasons why we must accept difficult, even difficult people, even difficult people. And the first is this. We accept them so that they can see the work of God in our lives. Now in verses 8 and 9, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament section of 2 Samuel 22, 49 through 51. And I put in the highlight in the blue, this is the quote of Paul. In the blue on the screen, Therefore I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. That's what Paul is quoting from. Here's the larger context to why Paul is taking that quote. If you back up a verse, Who also brings me out of my enemies, you even lift me above those who rise against me. You rescue me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. He is a tower of deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. So why does Paul pull that one quote in blue, put it into verse 8 and 9? Because the greater context is he says, I want you to see the work of God. Why are we praising God? Because you have brought me out of my enemies. You lifted me above those who want to rise against me. Because he is a tower of deliverance to his king. He shows loving kindness to his anointed. 
anointed. He does good things for me. Why should I accept and give praise to God? Because the work that God has done in my life is so significant. So why do we accept people so that they can see the work of God in our lives? That's what he's talking about. Secondly, accept them to warn them that all will be held accountable before the Lord. Now Paul quotes from Moses. In blue are the words of Paul. The rest is the context of those words. Rejoice, O nations, with his people. Why should they rejoice? For God will avenge the blood of his servants. And I will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. What God is talking about here is, is I want you to rejoice, but I need for you to rejoice and be accepting of people because I have a vengeance. I have a settling the score. I have a have an, an accountability that you need to understand. And so why do we accept people? To warn them that God will hold them accountable for what they believe. Thirdly, we accept them so that they will accept Jesus Christ. One of the Isaiah passage that he quotes from in that day, the nations resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. The root of Jesse is David and then Jesus. Why do we accept people? So that they can accept Jesus. We bring them to the root of Jesse. We bring them to Jesus. Here are the three reasons why we accept people. Number one, we accept them so that they can see the work of God in your life. Let me illustrate. We have life groups in our church, and they mean a lot to a lot of people. If you're not in a life group, I encourage you to get in a life group, because in a life group you begin to build relationships. In the big house here, uh, you sit in a seat and you occasionally see the same people if you sit in the same seat. But in life groups, you actually begin to be accepted by others. I got this email two weeks ago. I'm going to read part of it. It's from a couple that's in one of our life groups. And they just wanted me to hear their story in their life group. Pastor Dave, I'm writing you this letter to let you know how abundantly we have been blessed by the people of Calvary Church. And what an amazing job they are doing of living out God's calling of generosity and service. My husband and I began attending Calvary about two years ago. We were immediately welcomed in by several families after attending Calvary for a short time. We knew it would be our home. Last summer, we joined a life group because we wanted to deepen relationships with people at church, meet new families, and have a group for spiritual growth and accountability. We had no idea how the families in this group would impact our lives. As we shared some of our financial concerns with the group and asked for prayer and wisdom, our life group not only lifted us up in prayer, but also began to bless us financially with their generosity. It began with an envelope given to us at church one Sunday with a check inside. A few weeks later, it was an offer to loan us money as interest-free with no deadline to pay to help us to pay our credit card debt. A few weeks later, it was an anonymous check in the mail. At this point, we were already humbled and thankful beyond uh, words could express. I could never expect more. Our life group has taught us to trust in God's provision, that when communities are functioning as Jesus has called them, we would all share the needs and burdens of each other. We have been able to host safe families' children again, so this blessing given to us will not only stop with us, but be passed on to others. That's the idea. When we asked, when uh, uh, we have... We also have really amazing example of generosity in the body of Christ to share with our friends and neighbors when they ask about our new car. See, the telling others of the work of God. 
if this isn't the best promotion of a life group that you've ever heard, then I don't know what it is. We just wanted to share what Calvary has done for us and why we're so thankful to call it home. We accept others so they can see the work of God in our lives. Secondly, we accept others to warn them that they'll all be held accountable to the Lord. Let me tell you my most favorite story on this that some of you will remember. But for those of you who have never heard this, it's good for you to hear this. One of my friends that I went to high school with, his name is Dick. Dick was the pastor, went to, Dow- went to Denver Seminary. I went to Dallas Seminary, but I still forgive him. And so he landed up in a church in a resort area, one of the ski resorts of the Rocky Mountains. He served there for a number of years and suddenly discovered that the youth pastor had been embezzling money from the church funds. So Dick went to the elders and says, Elders, we need to discipline this uh, young man. He's been stealing money from the church. We can't let this go. And the elders said, Oh, we don't want to rock the boat. You know, let's just cover it up. Let's just brush it aside. It's no big deal. We won't do anything. We won't press charges. Well, Dick was so incensed over their lack of response of justice and just letting a pastor of all people get away with stealing money from the church. It's just unforgivable. So Dick resigned. He resigned from the church. And so one Sunday he reads his resignation. The very next Sunday, a big storm. You know how the big storms roll through the Rockies? Lightning and thunder. So this big storm blows through this little community, this ski village, and a lightning bolt comes out of the heavens, strikes the church, and burns it to the ground. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) That next week, the chairman of the elder board knocks on Dick's door. Dick, we've reconsidered the situation. <laughs> and finally, the DA and all that took justice. Accept people because we will all be held accountable. I like to hold that story of the elders here at Calvary Church as well. So. <laughs> Thirdly, accept them so they will accept Jesus. Accept them so they will accept Jesus. Got one more story. Actually, I have two more if I have time. I love these stories. Went to a lot of effort to find these stories. Some from our church, some are anonymous. But it's a story of a fellow by the name of Taylor. Taylor was an active man in his church. He loved the Lord and was vital in leading the men's ministry of that church. And then Taylor is a guy that you, if you watched, uh, well, no. Taylor led this ministry, and he, he got himself in trouble. He got so bent out of shape because somebody said something, somebody did something, he got tweaked. People get tweaked, tweaked, tweaked in the church, and all of a sudden they're like, I'm, I'm out of here. It just kind of drives you a little nutty sometimes. So he finally got deeply hurt by some of the people in the church, and he left the church. Well, the men's ministry wasn't going to let their leader just leave. And so here's what they did. And I don't know if this is always the best idea, but this is what this church did. So the men of the men's ministry, they went to the tailor's house and they set up a bunch of tents in the front of his house and this 150 men's ministry, they began to live in Taylor's front yard. They ran electrical cords to the neighbor's house so they could have electricity, so they could have TV. So they had TV, they had barbecue grills, and so they were just camped out in Taylor's front yard. Well, Taylor wasn't too thrilled about all these men camping out as they took shifts throughout the day. And so he calls the cops. So the cops came numerous times in those six days that they camped out in his front yard. And the cops, 
would knock on the door and says, Taylor, can we help you? And when Taylor, every time Taylor would open the door, all the men in the front yard would stand up and cheer. Taylor, yeah, we love you. And they would call him another day. Taylor, we love you every time we open the door. And this kept on, this chant kept on going. And I was like, I'm not sure this would work for everyone. But it worked for Taylor because on the sixth day, when the cops finally came back again and, the peop- and, the, and he walked out on the front porch and all the men stood up and cheered for, Taylor, we love you! Taylor began to cry. He just broke down. And he went out there and the guys just embraced him. He's okay. I give. I'm back. Thank you. Thank you for loving on me. Whatever it takes, we accept them so they accept Jesus. That's one of the things I loved about Chuck Smith. He would say about the hippies. Remember them? They went down to Costa Mesa. We accepted them, he said, so they'd accept Jesus. And that's what this passage is teaching us. So the final result is this. Acceptance brings God's hope, joy, and peace from His Spirit. It just blesses us. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's something that happens of God's joy and peace and hope begins to fill us in this acceptance. It's sort of the the benediction of acceptance. It's what God does. He loves to do that. And before I ask you to do something, I want to give you one last illustration. Judd Wilhite's a guy that I've heard speak at some of the conferences. He's got a big church, Central Christian Church up there in Las Vegas. He's got a lot of the dancers that come and, and the uh, theater and the strip there and uh, lots of needs of the men and women who are in those Vegas shows. And there's one man that he had in his uh, particular church there in Christian, Cody Huff. Cody Huff, you might recognize that name. Cody Huff uh, used to be on ESPN. Uh, he was a big pro-bass fisherman. So he was kind of a big deal with the pro-bass uh, people until he got himself involved with crack, cocaine, meth, and got himself in $600,000 worth of debt and finally just lost everything. Just lost everything and became a homeless guy living on the strip. He just lived on the streets. Cody. And then Central Christian Church began an outreach to the homeless people. And they went to people like Cody and said, Cody, you can come have a shower at our church if you'd like to have a shower. And Cody thought, oh, last place I want to go to is church. But I haven't had a shower in weeks. So he comes to Central Christian Church for a shower. And when he got there, this is his recounting of that day. I walked into the church. This lady named Michelle, who knew me from the homeless ministry, said, Good morning, Cody. How are you? Then she looked at me and said, Cody, you need a hug. And I said, honey, you you don't want to touch me because I haven't had a shower in three months. If Michelle heard me, she didn't seem to care. She walked up. She looked in my eyes. She gave me a big hug, told me that Jesus loved me. In that split second, I was somebody. She even remembered my name. That was the point where I knew that God was alive in this world. Over the next several weeks, Cody's life began to be restored and he gave his life to Christ. He started leading a Bible study for homeless people. That was over three years ago, Judd said. 
He's now married, and he and his wife serve faithfully in the homeless ministry of Central Christian Church. He has his own business, and from ashes, God has raised him up to use him as an instrument. But his ministry began with the hug of a woman that didn't care how dirty he was. He was accepted by a Christian church that embraced him, filth and all. God has called you and me to accept others, no matter, no matter their problems, so they can accept Jesus. I'd like to invite you to stand up for a moment. So if you don't mind, thank you for listening. Wake up the people around you so they don't keep, stay sitting. Here's what I'd like to do for the next four or five minutes. I don't know about the hugging thing. That's up to you. But one of the things we do each Sunday is greet one another. I'd like for you to greet someone around you. And here's the question I'd like for you to ask. How has God worked in your life this year? It may be we got, we're going to Hawaii next week. It may be we just got back from Hawaii. It may be that I just got a new job. It may be I just got a new car. It may be that I, you know, uh, fixed the plumbing in my pool. I don't know. How is God working in your life? Or it could be something more significant. I was a drug addict and God saved me from that awful, awful meth. But would you share with someone maybe that you don't usually sit around? Because you're probably sitting where you normally sit, right? Are you mostly sitting where you normally sit? So maybe you might have to walk maybe even 50 feet. And just find someone that's sort of looking around like you're kind of looking around like, who am I going to talk to now? And give enough time, because you've got two minutes for you to say it. And I know it's not much, because I've been just talking for way too long up here. But then the other person to say, how has God been working? And then if you're, well, just do that. 